0: yourself. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm Carol jurgensen Sheep, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and I am so happy to be with you tonight. I'm telling you, it's Happy Monday, and fall is here for you people out in the Midwest and on the East Coast. I know that the well I guess it would be West Coast too. I mean, the leaves are changing it's beautiful. Now, I know our people out in California and and boy, the coasts are having a hard hard time, and so we just want you to know that you're in our prayers right now because strange year for everybody and everything and we've had a lot to deal with, and it can be really mind-boggling when you're dealing with your own personal issues and then you've got all these environmental issues too. You know, flash floods, COVID, fires, COVID, Uh, Black Lives Matter, something so very important, and yet a lot of brutality and um, rioting, looting. It's just it is, it's, as I said earlier, mind-boggling, but this is a show that will hopefully bring you some safety, and this show will hopefully inspire you to know that if you are an addict, you can get help. There are people, there are places, and there are projects to help you. You know, I remember when I was training with Patrick Hans, and he said, as soon as I put my first book out, what I knew to be true was that it was obsolete. You know, he put his book out, I think, in 1988, and the Internet had not even begun to be a problem. He was talking about compulsive sexual behavior, but he did not have the internet to contend with, which exacerbated things and brought them a thousandfold into the limelight of compulsivity. So now, specialists who can help you with your condition, they can help you with compulsive problematic sexual behavior. And if you love somebody who has this affliction, this disorder, this condition, there are things we can do to relieve you, too. Because it's all about figuring out how to manage something that feels so unmanageable. Now, tonight, I'm going to be interviewing Judy Kelly, who is a CSAT, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she actually had reached out to me and said, I want to help men become more relational, and I want to know if I can use your course, your book, to help them. And, of course, I am always 100% up for quality people running groups, helping individuals, couples, families, to develop relational skills and manage their own recovery. Because you and I know this is not just an individual recovery issue. It's also relational. And boy, when you hear Judy tonight, you're going to know that she is absolutely on board with helping addicts figure out how to develop relational skills And also keep them from going into that shame spiral. You know, I decided that I was going to do an online course on shame, resiliency, and everybody I'm talking to is talking about it too. Kind of like when you buy that car and you think you've got something pretty unique and then you see it all over the road, you know, they're everywhere and you go, wow, i never noticed these cars before. And, I can't stop noticing them. Well, it's the same thing with topics. And shame resiliency is my new thing, so you're going to be hearing more about it later. But Judy is actually going to be talking about a fifth type of communication style that she helps, she hopes that it will help the addict stay strong and keep them out of that shame spiral. So I'm super excited to hear more about that. And I want to give you a heads up, Uh, Marnie Breaker and I are going to be doing an online course December 4th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and we're going to be doing a lot of interactive exercises to help you and your partner with empathy with promoting understanding and healing. It's not just about my book. I mean, we're going to be doing some real um, interactive exercises to move you through the relational um, aspect of dealing with your own anger and grief about what's happened in your life, whether you're the addict or the partner. We're going to be teaching partners strategies to reduce and manage triggers effectively. We're going to be teaching relational and resiliency skills so that addicts stay out of that shame cycle. And we're going to be talking about communication skills that will enhance intimacy, closeness, and, of course, good old empathy. Now, what I'm so excited about is that, you know, Marnie is amazing. She and I have been on the board for APSAT, and she was one of the founding members. She works a lot with uh, Manwala. And Omar taught her a lot of things that she brings to her couples every single week. She's probably taught him a bunch too, but she's way humble for that. So she talks about everything she's learned from him. And so I am hoping this interactive workshop on December 4th from 12 to 7 Eastern Standard Time, 9 to 3 Pacific Standard Time will be what you need before the holidays to get you in line with feeling that closeness that you deserve. Go to Meredith. M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H at L-A-C-R-H dot com. Reserve your space today. And if you register before October 9th, which I do believe is this Friday, you get $50 off. So I'm really hoping that, you know, this workshop will make a difference in the lives of couples everywhere. It's all about relational healing, in a and connection. So I'm excited to be able to do that with Marnie and also just to be with you all and hear what your concerns are and help you to improve your relationship. And for the partners that I work with so closely, we're going to be talking about how do you move beyond partner betrayal? into post-traumatic growth because ultimately that's what CSATs and CCPSs want to do. We want to help you to move beyond all the desperation, the depression, and all the shame and guilt and embarrassment and humiliation and move you forward so that you feel good about yourself. I've said it before, I'll say it again, Patrick Carnes said it best when he said, you know, your suffering brings great transformation. And when you experience that transformation, then you become the legacy you want to be. He's a big believer in leading legacies. And that's what the 12-step program is all about. That's what the process is all about. I know that's what we do as counselors and coaches is we want to leave a legacy so that we know that we've had purpose and passion, and that's what we instill in you, because you teach us, just in the same way as we teach you. And that's why Judy Kelly's coming on tonight, because she has found it extremely helpful to use, help her heal. This is addicts and helping their partners heal. And she's just made it her own. So I love that. I love when professionals are able to take a concept, mix it up, and make it better. Judy's very, very talented. We're going to be talking about her website as well as talking about all the services she offers. So this is a good show tonight. Um, if you're an addict, we want to talk about keeping you out of that shame spiral. And that's what the show's all about. So I want to welcome Judy Kelly to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Judy, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Carol, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm, just, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about your wonderful workbook and the group I'm doing. It's just great to be here. Thank you. Well, you've
0: got to tell me what in the world made you decide that this might be a good resource for the the men that you work with and also by offering it in group format. I think that's genius.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, actually, truth be told, there were two men that I see that were telling me Um, that they bought the book because I told them about it, and they were starting to to get together and do it. And I thought, wow, I have other men that can definitely benefit from this book, um, and so why not do a group? So the first thing I want to say is I'm I'm happy to be here to talk about the group and this workbook, and not just because you, along with Alan Katz, happened to write it, but – it really, truly is a fabulous and very important part of what I see as our therapeutic responsibility at CSATS really to help sex addicts to begin to learn to identify and practice empathy toward their traumatized partner. I decided to offer this Help or Heal Empathy Men's Group for sex addicts um, and folks that struggle with infidelity because, you know, I've always felt that while the need for identifying and practicing empathy within this treatment population is profoundly necessary, that we've always needed a way to do a deep dive into empathy. It's often such an ongoing missing or compromised struggle for the addicts from discovery to formal disclosure victim impact and really needs to be an authentic part of emotional restitution, right? They can't do that without empathy. And really Mm -hmm. through all the growth and repair stages of healing, really empathy and self-compassion is really something that we all need to integrate into ourselves and our relationships to be authentic, loving, successful human beings. So, Empathy is, is one of the things really that makes us real and connected, and we can't have trusting relationships without it. So I decided to offer this Helper Heal Men's Group for those who are in sexual addiction and infidelity recovery and really want to learn how to help their partners heal from the trauma caused by their past acting out behaviors and dishonesty. I I offer it on Zoom. It's a psychoeducational group that's therapeutic in nature, but we meet for two hours once a week for ten weeks, and we utilize Yorin Allen's beautiful helper heal workbook as our foundation from which to work. And I usually work with eight participants. And yeah, I, I want to be offering this group on an ongoing basis.
0: Oh, I so appreciate
1: that, and I got to tell
0: you. I want to tell you about a funny story. You know, you said that your two group, well, your two um, clients were the impetus for getting this started because they were going to work on it together. And, you know, just like uh, a 12 step program, they say you really only need two to make the magic. And so obviously those guys were ahead of their time in terms of saying, Hey, let's do this together and let's work on it as if we are a group. And, I, I was driving um, I was driving home one day from the lake and I had been wanting to write this book. I'd been working on it a little bit, but I wasn't working fast enough. And sweet Alan Katz, who I've had on the show several times, had hmm. taken something that I had presented at a CSAT workshop and he had turned it into a beautiful um with illustrations, a beautiful teeny tiny workbook and he said hey I thought you would like this this is all your information and I just made it more beautiful and I looked at it and I said you know what I wonder if Alan would work on an empathy book with me because I think if I committed to Alan I would get this done (laughs) so I (laughs) right on the way home from the lake I called him and I said Alan would you be my co-author? And he said, I don't know that I have that much time. And I said, oh, just write 10 pages. And if you write 10 pages, that's good enough for me because I just need somebody to hold me accountable. And so that's uh-huh. what he did. He wrote He wrote more than 10 pages. He wrote that wonderful chapter on intimacy. And um, oh, okay. was, he, he put it together for us so that I was accountable and got this thing together and just like the guys that were your clients getting together, wanting to work on this, really kind of initiating in you, hey, let's make this bigger, larger, and with more structure, and we can make it happen. That's what Alan did with me. And, you know, he's a genius. He's written seven books all by himself. And he's just somebody in the profession that that holds – Holds his his uh, therapeutic beliefs to the highest standard. So a shout out to Alan, who's my co-author on this. And yes, and as you yeah, as you read the empathy book, really take a look at the intimacy chapter because that's all Alan's and he did a
1: lot of interesting. Yeah, and that's so a that's, that's a great that's chapter. And I yeah. For. Yeah. I will tell you, Carol, interestingly enough, I think I know the workshop that you're talking about because I was in that workshop. It was you presented at ITAP, it was years ago and mm-hmm. and you talked a lot about empathy and I was like, This woman's brilliant. <laughs> this is this is Aww. so good. It's honestly was one of the work, best workshops I've been to that has to do with CSAT credentialing. It was wonderful.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Well,
1: don't you love our community? It's small
0: enough that we really get to know each other, and gosh, we really can make it our own. And so that's what you did with your Help Her Heal groups. Now, I want to let my listening audience know that I'm talking with Judy Kelly, and she runs Help Her Heal groups for sex addicts to help their partners heal. And you put some of your own spin on it, and and we're going to be talking about that but I want to ask you some of the dynamics. Like when somebody wants to join your group, how do you assess if they're ready?
1: So, um, you know, I think this group is really ideal for men who may still be in the crisis stage but have either completed their formal disclosure to their partner with a CSAT therapist or have done mm-hmm. much of the preparation work around it and are close to doing that therapeutic conference. The reason being is that in the first week of the Helper Heal group, we really hit the ground running with exercises such as, you know, what you have in the first chapter, I am willing exercise, how I have wounded my spouse exercise, the first timeline, our history, the second timeline, my sex addiction, and the empathy statements exercise. So since the first chapter is a little kind of what I call homework heavy, I asked participants to begin the written work after they have signed up for the workshop and we've talked about it and everything, making sure it's a fit. I ask them to begin the written work for the first week before we even meet for the first group so that they have plenty of time for thoughtful contemplation and completing each of those exercises. And then I let them know that, you know, we have a full week for completing all the exercises in each chapter in between the groups. So in the first group, you know, that gives us an opportunity to create a safe, supportive group environment in which to work over the 10 weeks. You know, we talk about what the men need to feel safe with each other, which in many ways is very similar to what their partners need, right? Honesty, Mm -hmm. transparency, a willingness to be vulnerable, listening without defensiveness or judgment, being present with each other. And I have to say that I really applaud the participants in this men's group for caring so deeply about their partner's healing, as well as their ongoing healing and recovery. And I think in most cases, sex addicts really want to help their partners heal and demonstrate empathy, but many just don't know how. And so this group and your workbook gives them a way to do that deep dive, take that deep dive into all of it.
0: Well, you know, you're right. And so I'm gonna ask you a clinical question that you have no idea that I was gonna be asking tonight. And that is, do you think that the men, prior to forming their sex addiction, and you know for many men, that's, boy, back in adolescence or even younger, nice. but do you think that they didn't know empathy, didn't learn empathy, didn't practice empathy, or do you think they had empathy, most of them, and it, it got hijacked by their addiction?
1: That's a fabulous question, and I think it's maybe a little of both. Um, but my guess is my guess leans more toward most sex addicts really not knowing what to say and how to demonstrate empathy. And I think the reason because that, you know, like sex addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, you know, it's a self-medicating, numbing um, coping mechanism, and it's a way to avoid feelings. And if we're going to avoid feelings, we're avoiding empathy as well. So I think, I think most sex addicts actually don't know what to say and how to demonstrate empathy because they, I think, you know, we know from statistics that they often grow up in homes, not always, there are exceptions, but they often grow up in homes where there was emotional, physical, intellectual, spiritual, or sexual abuse and or emotional neglect. And we often don't know empathy because our parents don't know how to show empathy. So it can be a whole new concept in language. I think we need to keep in mind that sex addiction and infidelity is an emotional intimacy disorder, and we can't have emotional intimacy without knowing or practicing empathy. And that's hard to do, especially if, it wasn't done with you growing up. I will tell you, there's a, there's an interesting research study that was done years ago that identified babies as young as six months old that were capable of feeling and demonstrating empathy. But again, this was a result of having caretakers who could role model empathy with and for them. So in things like the empathy statement exercise, I. I first go over, um, you know, can you talk about a time, you know, that you kind of blew it with your partner, like what did you say? And, and you know, we kind of go over what not to say, which are mistakes that a lot of addicts make in the beginning stage of treatment. So saying things like, I know how you feel. Uh, you can't. Um, I understand the pain I've caused. No, you don't because you can't possibly. Mm -hmm. I'm working hard in recovery, and you don't give me credit. Uh, It's your job to validate me, not my job to validate you. So we go over and share what some good examples then of empathic statements are, such as, and you you highlight a lot of these in the the breakout workshop that you did that I attended, Um, things like, I can see that you're triggered, no wife, or partner should ever have to worry about seeing her husband's past affair partner when she's running errands. I can't even begin to imagine the destruction and devastation I've caused you. I know that your anger is because of all the horrible pain I've caused you. I want you to know that I hate that I did this to you and our marriage. So, And I also encourage clients to use their senses, such as, I can see on your face the pain and anguish I have caused you. I can hear in your voice how sad and hurt and hopeless you must feel. I sense that you might be triggered, and is that what's going on? Can you tell me about it? I want to be accountable and support you. What do you need from me right now? So I really encourage addicts I work with to actually create an ongoing list of empathic statements, you know, like you did, and They may Mm -hmm. want to choose from, yeah, when their partner is triggered. And we share these in group. And then people can add these empathic statements. And I do want to say, Carol, for any partners listening, please be aware that this is a necessary process. You know, we need to think and feel and practice our way into integrating any new behavior. And that includes empathy. Sex addicts in recovery are on the learning curve here, and empathy will start to become natural and integrated, but it takes practice. So, working—I'll tell you—I worked with a partner whose sex addict husband did an inpatient treatment program and came back with all sorts of empathic statements once he returned home. And she reported to me, she's like, "Well, all he learned of Judy was what to say, but I can tell he doesn't mean it." And Trust me, in most cases, the partner really wants to believe the addict. They really want to believe them. And the part of her recovery is reclaiming her intuition and her awareness and what is true and what is BS. And so for the addict, one of the best ways to practice empathy when you make these empathic statements is not only using a soft voice and a gentle tone, but also to get in touch with that part of you, the addict, that can relate to your partner's feeling. In other words, maybe my partner didn't betray me, but maybe my mother betrayed me by leaving our family when I was young, or my father betrayed me by abusing me. Finding that part inside of me that can say, yeah, I can identify with that feeling. The Another really important part of, I think, practicing empathy is timing. And I can't stress that enough. Sometimes addicts really want to practice empathy, which is a great thing, but their timing is off. And so here's a hint for the addicts listening. Okay. (laughs) Don't practice empathic statements or mirroring or validating when you should be standing in the fire quietly. You know, it Mm. it will often feel Mm -hmm. to your partner that you're not listening to her or that you're trying to control her or shut her down. You know, at times when your partner is really, really super triggered, it's better to use what you talk about in the book, passive listening with empathic eye contact, maybe quietly, softly acknowledging, perhaps with a soft shaking of your head, yes, <clears throat> and, um, or maybe softly saying, I hear you. And then once your partner is back in the window of tolerance, which we also go over, by the way, and I know you reference that in your book, um, that's a great time after she is emotionally self regulated, not in hyper or hypo arousal, to say something like, You know, can I tell you what I'm hearing you say? and mirror back to her without interjecting comments, um, and then check your mirroring for accuracy. Did I get that right? If she says yes, then you can validate her feelings with your empathic responses. It's also okay to wait longer. Maybe your partner is really super triggered and doesn't want to talk to you that day or night or even the next day, depending how strong her trigger is. But it's always okay to circle back. You know, addicts, don't be afraid to circle back the next day and say, I wonder if we can circle back to what happened yesterday. I could tell you were really, really triggered, and I really want you to know I heard you and what you said, and I want to validate your pain. So it may go something like this. This all must be so beyond devastating for you, and I can't begin to imagine how you are getting through each day. I am so profoundly sorry that my actions have brought all this pain upon you and our relationship. I want you to know I am and will continue to do everything I can to help you heal from the damage I've caused. And really, (coughs) excuse me, what that is, is your AVR formula, right? Right. It's, it's yeah. AVR and and I love that that you came up with the AVR formula, which is ag- the A acknowledge the issue, V, validating your partner's feelings and taking some guesses about he or she might feel, and then R reassurance that you will do everything in your power to help her heal. So that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs>
0: Well, no, but that was very, very well said. And I agree with you. Timing can be everything. As well as the ABR formula is simple. But for men, it is not simple. And they get right. the um, order mixed up and they begin to validate feelings in the acknowledgement of the issue or the pain. And so it really does take practice. And that's why I love that you're doing that in groups so that they can practice and role model. And they get good when they are able to listen to other guys not using it properly or using it properly. I mean, they, they can really right. see the holes or the mistakes um, when they're watching somebody else. They can feel it when it's themselves. But Truly, really
1: to write the book, Nice play, and we do role you know. plays. We do role plays in group. It's like, does anybody want to role play maybe something that happened this week? How did it work? How did it not work? And you know, the, or just does anybody have something where they got stuck in or got frozen? Do you want to share what the scenario is? And somebody else will role play that out, and then we'll we'll talk about it. Mhm. Yeah, it sounds so like that's
0: you really you know how to do it right that's for sure now let me ask you something because clearly uh you have learned this process so well and you actually have added some of your own concepts or concepts that you knew about that you think enhance enhance like the um four four styles of communication you know in the book it says that that's being passive or being aggressive or being passive aggressive or assertive and you've got this other thing you talk about can you tell our listening audience about that
1: yeah I mean the other piece and and I love how you've outlined the passive assertive aggressive and passive aggressive styles but there's another style and it's really not very helpful but it is helpful to be aware of it and that's passive resistance Um. Because, um, well, I want to say, I'll talk about that in a second, but I want to say I really like how you laid out, Carol, the the other styles of communicating so clearly because it really related to the possible dynamics of those struggling with sex addiction and their betrayed partners. So just like with empathy at the end of the day, I think most, most addicts also want to communicate clearly with gentle assertiveness when appropriate, but Mm -hmm. just also may never have learned that skill. So the other fallback positions, um, however, you know, being aggressive or passive-aggressive can be destructive and not helpful in healing and restoring relationships. For instance, I'm glad you brought up the example of DARVO when you're talking about the passive-aggressive style. And in my men's group, I asked the seven men or eight men who has heard of DARVO? I asked him this a couple of weeks ago, and only one guy raised his hand. And he said he only knew about it because his wife told him. <laughs> and I told him, mm. I said, I find that very interesting um, because I can guarantee you all your partners know about DARVO, <laughs> and they did. Um, so in the early stages of treatment, you know, some addicts might use DARVO, spelled D-A-R-V-O, and a lot of your listeners may know what that means, but, but addicts, when they're being held accountable by their partners for their harmful behaviors, DARVO is a term that was coined by Jennifer Fraid and stands for the D is deny, the A is attack, the R is reverse victim, and the O is offend. And it means when an addict feels defensive when being confronted by his traumatized partner, he reverses the scenario you know, to make the addict the victim and the partner the offending party. So I will tell you I love the discussion by the men in this group who really understand this defense strategy and can own it and can tell on themselves and identify it and say yeah I know that one I know that one this is what I did this is what I said this is how I did it. You know and the reality is we can all we don't have to be sex addicts we can all fall prey to Darvo under the right circumstances and but as the saying goes often the mistakes we make are far less important than how we handle them afterwards. So let me tell you the, the fifth, you were asking about the fifth communication style, passive resistance, as a defense. So I, I see that as really saying yes when you mean no. And so to illustrate this, I, like, I use this example of something from my own life I call the garage story, <clears throat> which is mm-hmm. my husband and I have been married 38 years. We have three adult children and five grandchildren we have lived in the same house for 34 of those years. We've collected a lot of stuff over the years. So every five to six years or so, I ask my husband, will you please just kind of gut the garage? Will you just throw out a lot of the crap and we don't need a lot of this stuff? And, and I'm part of that too because it's my stuff is in there too. But this particular time, a number of years ago, I remember asking him like every – Every weekend or every other weekend, I'd say, honey, and honestly, it wasn't a huge priority for either of us, but you couldn't walk in there. We couldn't put the cars in there, so it was becoming a problem. Yeah, yeah, honey, I'll get to it. Okay, great, thank you. Well, the weekend would come and go, and the garage never got worked on. Honey, will you work on the garage this weekend? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. The weekend would come and go, nothing happened. And then suddenly I realized, oh my gosh. Um, over months this happened, and I realized I thought I had an agreement, but I never really did. It was more, yeah, yeah, get off my back. And my husband's darling. He's a wonderful man, but, you know, he, I, you know who likes to clean out a garage for a 34 years' mess? So anyway, he was saying it, but he didn't have any real intention of doing it. And I was believing I had an agreement, and I never did. So this went on and off. For about three months, and I finally woke up to this dysfunctional exchange, and I thought, Judy, what are you doing? So that Friday, I said, one Friday, I said, honey, will you will you work on the garage this weekend? I know I've you about it, but would you work on it? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. And I said, that's fabulous, thank you. So, are you thinking maybe Saturday or Sunday? And he kind of looked at me, and I said, well, I don't know. Well, just just which which are you thinking? Okay, Sunday. Okay, so are you thinking like after church? Are you thinking before church? And he kind of gave me that look and said, after church. And I said, so, again, I don't want to bug you. I just want to be clear so I don't have to bug you. Or are you thinking like 10 o'clock and working for a couple hours or 11 o'clock? <laughs> Fine, 10 o'clock. Okay, great. So 10 o'clock on Sunday, you're going to work, start working on the garage to clear it out for a few hours. Yes. And guess what he did? He actually cleaned out the garage. For the first time, and it's the moral wow. of the story is it's it's important to practice gentle assertiveness at times and close those <laughs> loopholes which I wasn't doing. So you can have a real commitment, you know, if you if you you know if you kind of close those loopholes and we can do that with treatment too. It's like, are you going to go to SA? Are you going to go to SAA or SNO? yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, without ever really going. So I'm a big fan of closing loopholes, assertiveness unlike other communication, and that was the passive resistance style, the garage story. My husband knows I tell it all the time. Um, but, but it's important to use assertiveness. Um, and when we, Because when we say, I think, or I feel, or I want, or would you please clean out the garage, what we're really saying is, I matter. And I'm glad that you talked about how assertiveness really increases self-esteem, where uh-huh. passivity, aggressiveness, mm-hmm. and the others, they really decrease self-esteem, and they promote hiding and secrecy, and may even lead to acting out. I think, I think a lot of addicts are afraid to practice gentle assertiveness because they feel like they shouldn't have any rights because of the damage they've done. Um, and while that's okay in the crisis stage, eventually – that needs to shift eventually, after there is more uh-huh. stabilization. Um, you know, you don't want to use it when your partner's triggered, and you should be standing in the fire. You want to use it after your partner feels validated, empathized, and because um, your partner's healing has to be your first consideration. So, you know, when when people, there will come a time in relational healing when. Addicts know that the timing is now right to practice, general assertiveness. And, you know, Carol, I really like your assertiveness formula that you also use in the workbook um, that I share. And so an example of your assertiveness formula might be something like, and we've heard clients talk about, you know, situations like this. So it might be, Beth, when you scream at me and call me names into the early morning hours, I feel hurt, shame, and devalued because I already feel terrible about the destruction that I've caused and it causes me to go deeper into shame and despair. And so here, you know, I can describe that specific, feel, the behavior, like you say, the feeling and the message it's sent. And, you know, we can also add, and the story I make up in my head about that is, you hate me, you think I'm a terrible person, And you don't think we'll ever heal our relationship. So the, you know, it's important to go through that formula, I think. It can be very helpful. Um, The feeling, the behavior, the message it sent me, and even maybe the story I make up in my head.
0: Well, I... I really appreciate that because you're spoon-feeding them and then encouraging them to practice those empathy statements and that gentle assertiveness. And one more time, for our listening audience, assertiveness is when you say, Tom, when you come home late from work, so when you, the behavior, I feel one of the five feelings because the message it sends me is, So, Tom, when you come home late for work, I feel scared because the message it sends me is you could be out doing other things or the message it sends me is I might not be safe right now. And with gentle assertiveness, you start out by telling the partner, because you're right, Judy, they don't feel like they have a say anymore, that they can be honest because they're afraid they'll get criticized for it. And we don't want to set that dynamic up. We just want to figure out the best time, the best way, and and the best formula. And so with general assertiveness, the addict starts out by saying, you know, I know that I've caused you loads of pain. And whenever I leave, you're not sure where I'm going or when I'll be home. And you wonder if I'm acting out. That's acknowledging right. the issue. But then right. they say but I need to tell you that when I am five minutes late and you start yelling at me, I feel angry because the message it sends me is you'll never trust me again, even though I'm working really hard at rebuilding that trust. Well, when an addict says something like that, wow, that changes the dynamic. She's able to have some empathy for him.
1: Right, and I think it goes back to timing because I think if, you know, if somebody, if the addict were to say that a month into treatment, the partner may want to push him out a window. But if the if the addict says that, you know, a little down the road um, and the partner is out of crisis, I think she's going to be much more apt to hear that, don't you think? Yeah, oh, 100%.
0: So let me just ask you, and again, I want to remind my audience that I'm talking with Judy Kelly, LCSW, CSAT, and CDWF. What does that stand for?
1: (laughs) It's just, yeah. It's um, Certified Daring Wave Facilitator. So I'm also certified in doing Daring Greatly and Rising Strong workshops and had the opportunity to train with Dr. Brene Brown and um, mm-hmm. in doing, uh, doing those workshops. And I have a, just like I think you do, a special interest in treating sex addiction and shame resiliency together, um, because it's just, you know, it's something that we all have, and it's something that we need to acknowledge and be aware of and become resilient around, whether a sex addiction is present mm-hmm. or not, yeah. Okay. So your website, which is
0: you know really it's a resource for for anybody who's got addiction, is www.judiceckelly.com. kelly and that's k e l l y. dot com. And how can they get themselves set up for your group? Um, can they go to the website? Sure.
1: Yeah. Um I think they can go to the website and um the the other thing to do and all honestly i'm I'm redoing my website as we speak, so there's not a lot of information on my website itself about this group, but they can but there will be um so but they can actually probably a better thing to do is to email me
0: uh-huh.
1: and um they can. Um, definitely email me at, at gmail.com, or they can call me 916-705-5661. Is my private practice, and I'd love to talk with them. Um, I uh-huh. just I think this workshop um, is so incredibly helpful, and um, I'm getting lots of good feedback from the guys. They really like it, and the women, the the partners. Are very um, appreciative, Carol, because they really—they're seeing throughout the course of the ten weeks. They're really seeing their husbands change, and um, it's really helpful. You know, Mm -hmm. they're noticing a difference. They're—they're like, "Ooh, I'm glad you're in that workshop. That's really helpful."
0: Oh, I love, I love that they're seeing a difference, but, you know, I know that they do because when the guys use these techniques, it works. Now, the bad news is that they hope that they'll see immediate responses in their partners, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I have absolutely found that, A, partners don't always trust the empathy statements and the changes. And so they really want to see them walk their talk. And then two, if they revert back to old behaviors, get disgusted, um, you know, put the blame, get defensive, then they go, see, this stuff doesn't work. You, You couldn't sustain it. And so that's where we have to help them with conflict. And you do a really nice job with that, you know, You and I both believe that conflict breeds intimacy. And so in Chapter 7 of the workbook, you are teaching them the seven principles of conflict. And I wanted you to tell our listening audience about those.
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, as you know, there's, there's so much crisis management and early recovery with the partner being understandably so incredibly traumatized and shock and devastated and, and the powerful feelings and fallout that can feel just insurmountable. And, um, you know, I will say that I think, you know, sometimes when couples have issues anyway and... Um, Then the sex addiction is discovered, and it's like, oh, okay, so these issues need to now be fixed yesterday. There is zero tolerance. And I get that because part of that is, you know, coming from the trauma. But the, the seven principles that I think you identify that help sex addicts navigate through the conflict and holding themselves accountable while not going down that shame spiral. So, um. I think you did a great job, Carol, about laying out those seven principles that help addicts, um, you know, to stay in solid recovery and stay out of the shame cycle while helping their partners heal. So I'm going to just highlight what you, some of the things you share in your workbook, these seven principles, because I think they're really helpful. Um, the, so the seven ones are, number one, when you experience conflict – ask yourself, how has my past contributed to the present-day conflict? Recognize the other 90% is about your past and not who you are today. So I encourage addicts to think silently, that was then, this is now, and stay in your emotional container. Just stay in your emotional container. Just because she's back there, you can just stay present within yourself. And that's Number two, hold yourself accountable for causing her the pain while not going into that shame mode. And I think part of that is we need to recognize our physiological responses to shame so we can silently identify it. If I'm in a place where I'm shrinking and my face is red and I feel five years old and I feel bad, then I'm in a shame place. But that which we resist persists, right? So I, th- I can identify mm-hmm. that, and it's like, ooh, I'm in some shame right now. But I don't need to dive headfirst into. You call it the shame spiral. I call it the shame shithole. <laughs> Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, we don't mm-hmm. want to. We don't want people to dive headfirst into there. So, number three, know that although her pain is a direct response to your past actions. It is not in response to who you are today. So I think that's really good. It's it's what I did. It's not who I am. And often the mistakes we make are far less important than how we handle them afterwards and knowing that's what I did. It's not who I am as a person. So deep breathing, box breathing. Number four, recognizing that you're strong enough to be a container for her pain That's about staying present and staying conscious and aware that, okay, I'm triggered right now, but I can be an emotional container for her. And you can help her work through her own trauma and move beyond it while you work on your own solid recovery. Number five, you identify, tell yourself the issue is not about you, but about a trauma response from your acting out in the past. Again, we're not our behavior. I think sometimes people... Don't learn that when they're little. It's, it's what I did. It's not who I am. And I feel awful about what I did, but I need to start to begin to love and like who I am. So number six, practice saying this is not who I am today. This is about the consequences of my past actions. And know that your recovery is your kryptonite, which I love. And here's my thing. I always tell folks, I don't want to be identified by the mistakes I've made. We all make mistakes. We're all imperfect. I don't want to be identified by the mistakes I've made. I want to own them and be accountable and move through it. So number seven, tell yourself I won't give my past guilt and shame that power to make me feel whatever it is, pain, shame, fear, sad. You know, all these, I think all of this really helps provide that strong emotional container Um, for the sex addict and their partner. And I think it's important for addicts to remember that if they do dive headfirst into that shame spiral, um, they're not only abandoning themselves, but their partner feels really abandoned all over again as the focus now turns to addict and gets off the partner. So it's not helpful when you kind of get hijacked. So, when that happens, you know your partner is going to feel even more alone, afraid, and often angry. So I encourage addicts to, and sometimes you just need to even tap on your forehead, um, think through the trigger, focusing on your frontal lobes, and practice staying solid in your own internal emotional container. And this inner strength within the addict will help his partner heal and keep the support and attention on her, which is where it needs to be. So staying present and aware in your body is really key here.
0: Well, you just did a great job going through those. And that's one of my favorite therapy statements anyway, anyhow, for anybody, when you say to yourself, I won't give blank the power to make me feel blank. And for sex addicts, it's I won't give my past the power to make me feel shameful, guilty, insecure. But, you know, oftentimes in relationships, if we can say, I won't give my husband the power to make me feel angry or I won't give my husband the power to make me feel inferior. We take back our power, which makes us feel better. And we are actually protecting ourselves from what the outside world can do to us. We have to um, give that consent ourselves. And, you know, that statement came from Eleanor Roosevelt who I just think is a genius, and she said, "Oh yeah, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now, that's, I that's to a fabulous you.
0: one. I want to ask you about the intimacy <clears throat> chapter, and you know, towards the end of Help or Heal. You have ways to help the guys practice emotional, intellectual, and sexual intimacy, and that, of course, was Alan Katz's very special contribution to the book. Have these tools been helpful in your men's group?
1: Yes, I think um, I think the participants really appreciate the the thought-provoking questions for themselves and their partners. It's a great opportunity for the guys to rank how they see themselves um, and how they're doing in treatment so far and compare that to how their partners see their progress. So I really appreciate that section on, for instance, intellectual intimacy, which is the ability to share your thoughts, ideas, hopes, fears, expectations, values, and life goals. Intellect with empathy means validating each other's point of view, even if you don't agree with them or may see some things differently. So as you say, you know, it's stated in the book, your character and motivation as an individual and couple says a lot about how empathic you can be with your spouse and that for a partnership to succeed, there must be congruent beliefs of right versus wrong and empathy toward differences. And I think it's so important to negotiate problems because here's the thing, you can't negotiate values. For example, one person may have a value that it's okay to drive drunk or for kids to skip school versus another who has a value that you need to drive safely and education is a value we share, which if you don't agree with that, that's obviously would be problematic in a relationship. Another really important and helpful piece here is the issue of sexual intimacy and empathy, which, you know, we could do a whole separate podcast on how do you reintegrate a healthy sexual relationship between a sex advocate in recovery and a betrayed partner. And that can come way down the road for a lot of folks. <clears throat> and I think Alan, you know, if he wrote this chapter primarily, I think, and, and with your input, I'm, I'm just going to quote, there's a great paragraph that Alan wrote on um, sexual intimacy and empathy. I'm just going to read it real quick. Empathy means understanding that you created this unsafe sexual environment and accepting your partner's physical or emotional dilemma. You recognize that this inhibits sex currently and you understand her feelings. You are willing to pace her instead of coercing your partner into having sex in any way. It's a respect for her feelings, letting go of her own wants and needs for the good, letting go of your own wants and needs for the good of the relationship. Sex can be a difficult subject to talk about in any relationship, so it's especially important to examine some of your feelings and the current sexual relationship. One of the things that I do is I I do this thing called a sexual autopsy with my couples with in recovery. And this involves things like exploring what and how the sex addict part may have showed up in their marital bed um, before mm-hmm. treatment and recovery and how that impacted the partner and, you know, we've drilled down on this as well as looking at what parts you know, we all have parts, a hundred parts that make up who we are. We have our inner critic, our judge, our maybe our good parent, oh, yeah. our best friend, you know, all these parts. And I do voice dialogue and others do internal family systems and you <coughs> you have know, got so we
0: so much really wisdom and we only have thirty seconds. So can we, oh, no. can you okay. come back on the show. And can we talk more about this intimacy thing cuz i don't know about you Judy but that's what men and women want back so badly
1: i think they absolutely do i i will just say if we only have 30 seconds left let me just say a couple things i have so much respect for sex addicts and folks in treatment for infidelity for their incredible courage and their mm-hmm. you know their deep interest in participating in the own, in their own healing And one final thought, you know, we've all heard of the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, but I don't believe that. I think a more empathic way to put it is we need to treat people the way they want to be treated.
0: Thank you so much, Judy, for contributing to that. We'll see you next week.